I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 12. And while you're doing that, <clears throat> how many of you here this morning would consider yourself to be directionally challenged? You know what I mean by that? Frequently lost. <laughs> Don't know which is east and which is west. <laughs> you ever learn this? This is L for left. <laughs> this is my right. This is my left. And so you kind of wonder where in the world you are. Well, I, I have great empathy for you because um, every once in a while I get lost. Well, I don't always know. What are you laughing at? <laughs> they were me in Colorado a few weeks ago. <laughs> I always knew where I was. I just didn't know where I was going. <laughs> I spent more time driving around in circles. We became, I became the king of U-turns in Colorado Springs. I don't like to be lost. I like to, be, I like to know where I am. I, you know, I want to have a sense of north and south and east and west. And Back in the day, I used to love to go backpacking. I would still love to do it if I could be the backpack. But uh, I used to love to go backpacking and hiking in the mountains. And um, how many of you know what orienteering is? You heard the term orienteering? You know, where you get, you get your map. Usually it's, it's not a typical road map. It's like a USGS quad map, a seven and a half minute quadrangle. Is that Greek to all of you? It's <laughs> and you get your compass and you get your altimeter if you have one. That was before GPS. And you could uh, look at your surroundings and take your map and find the peaks or the rivers or the paths and get your map oriented with the landmarks and your compass out and, and figure out your heading and know where you were. And if you were real brave, you could do what they called bushwhacking, which was when you left the trail and you just went out through the woods. Now, when you're in the middle of the Smoky Mountains and you're going through the woods, you better know where you're headed. And because uh, sometimes you have to divert and work around things, and so you have to follow your compass closely. And you know, when you're in when you're in the woods and you're just looking at a tree or a rock or a stream. Uh, they can all look alike. And after a while, you know, you kind of get focused in on those smaller particles of the landscape. And if you're, if you're not paying attention, or if the, there's a cloud cover and there's no sun, and you can't find any moss growing on any trees, you know, and you, you don't know where you are, you're kind of lost in the details. And every once in a while you have to back out and get the big picture. So I went back to Colorado Springs the next week, folks. I bought two maps. I went to the bookstore. I bought a road map of Colorado Springs, and I bought a topographic map of the whole region with Pikes Peak, so I would not be lost. And I didn't make quite as many U-turns, although I did drive 10 miles in the wrong direction one night after dinner. But uh, I don't know how that happened, but... Um, my folks with me laughed at that. But anyway, we had a good time. But every once in a while, you have to get kind of back out of the trees and the rocks and the streams and see the overview to get a feel once again for the lay of the land. And one of the things I did right before I called a plane to come back last weekend was um, I drove up to the top of Cheyenne Mountain, well not to the top, but as far as I could drive, and then I found this cool dirt road that went down the mountain, and I said, I've got to do that, and so I took this gravel road down the mountain, and uh, you know, it's, it literally was a cliff hugger, it was, it was really neat, and I came around this one turn, and there between the sloping sides of, of the um, kind of like the ravine or whatever they call it, the canyon that I was uh, working through, I could see down into the Colorado Valley, down into the 
all of Colorado Springs, the whole city, everything laid out on the plain as it was, you know, going toward the west. The Rockies are behind you, and you see all that. It was just, just incredible. And that was perspective. That was the overview, the picture of where I had spent a good part of the last two weeks as I looked down into Colorado Springs. I was going to go ahead in Romans, and as I was praying over it and thinking about it this morning, I thought, you know what, we've spent a lot of time looking at rocks and trees and streams. We spent almost five weeks working through spiritual gifts. We spent a month dealing with Christian liberty and legalism and those kind of things. And it's real easy in all of those details to lose sight of what the main message is. It's easy to lose the big picture. And I felt this morning as I was praying over it that we needed to take a step back and take a look at the big picture again and remind ourselves of what this is all about. Because you know in the Christian life there are details and there are specifics and there are things where God's working on this or He's working on that. But we all need to keep in mind what it's all about. We need to keep in mind the whole perspective. We need to know where we're really going. We need to know why we're here. We need to be reminded of God's eternal purpose and how we really fit into the big plan so that we can remember how important And how wonderful and how precious this journey really is. And in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, Paul is at a pivotal point. We've talked about that before, but I remind you again this morning. All that has gone before Romans chapter 12, those first 11 chapters, Paul has primarily focused on a detailed explanation of the fullness and the richness of the gospel message. All those chapters, he has described God's love for us in Jesus Christ and the full provision of the gospel for our whole life. But when we come to chapter 12, when Paul turns that corner and he takes the microscope off of the details, he addresses our heart. And I want to remind us this morning that if we miss Romans 12, 1, All that he said in the first 11 chapters is not going to really make any sense. And all that he encourages in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 will not be possible. Because there has to be a personal interaction with God that is in the form of a living sacrifice. There must be a decision, there must be a commitment. People talk about Christianity as if it were a religion. They talk about Christian philosophy. They talk about worldview. All of those things are important. But Christianity, even the word, kind of grates on me because it's not an appropriate perspective on a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's not about religion. It's not about a way of thinking or a way of seeing, even though that comes with time. But it's primarily about being related to a person who happens to be the eternal God who made us. And Paul brings us to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the interesting thing about sacrifice is sacrifices normally are bound. They're placed on an altar. Their throat is slit. And they die. And so Paul introduces a contradiction in terms when he says a living sacrifice. He reminds us that we're still walking about. 
We, we, we still are breathing. We're still functioning. But he says you need to have an attitude about your life that you recognize yourself as a sacrifice, as if you were devoted to an altar and given over to God with no more life of your own, but wholly given to Him. Now I want to remind us this morning, Jesus said, I have come that you can have life in all of its fullness, but there's a contingency. In order to have that life, you have to give up your life. And I ask you this morning, where are we in relation to this? You've heard all the sermons, but where are we today in relation to our commitment, to our relationship? Have you laid it on the altar for God? Have you completely taken your hands off your life? Have you let Him assume the control and the direction of your life from this day forward? I believe one of the things that leads to disappointment with God is when people expect the blessings of God and the provision of God without recognizing the devotion to God and the cost of discipleship. The abundant life that God promises is when my hands are off the steering wheel and He's in control. The abundant life comes when God, who knows what is best for me, is directing my steps and leading my life. And I want to ask you this morning, have you made this connection with God? Have you come to the place where you have devoted yourself to God as a living sacrifice, given up? The right to control your own life and turned it over to God, lock, stock, and barrel. Because if you haven't made that decision, none of the teaching of the first 11 chapters will truly make sense, and none of the practice of the next four chapters will be possible. You cannot live the Christian life without the power of Jesus Christ. You cannot hope to embrace the lifestyle described in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15 unless you are filled with the Spirit of God. And you cannot be full of the Spirit of God until you are empty of yourself. And so Paul begins there. He says, I've told you the whole story. Now I urge you, take action, make a decision. Devote yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Take your hands off your life and make sure God has absolute control over your being from this day forward. And as soon as Paul urges us to make that decision, which will flesh out in our lives the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He immediately turns to our relationship within the body of Christ. And he says, the next thing that you need to engage is the ministry that you have to one another. I heard a number of people express to me last night after the service how sweet the presence of God was in this room as we prayed for each other. I mean, four or five people said almost the same thing. There was so much love here. There was so much a sense of of the sweetness of God's presence. People accepting one another and praying for one another. I felt so comfortable. Marcia, wherever you are, thank you for sharing what you did. People sense that. You know, freedom to just let the Lord minister to them. And I want to remind you this morning, friends, that we are not our own. 
We have been bought with a price, but bought for a purpose. And that God has endowed us with supernatural anointing of spiritual gifts. He's given us gifts. I spent that last week that I was in Colorado, the second week, attending a class uh, in, in learning how to administer an instrument uh, called IDAC. Now, I always wondered what IDAC stood for, and I finally found out because I met the guy that created the name. And ID stands for identity, and ak is the Hebrew word for unique. And literally what he's saying is every person has a unique identity. And his effort was to design an instrument that would identify a person's natural talents and aptitudes in such a way as to find the vocations that would be best for them a good fit. It's kind of an interesting class. And what that was about is neither here nor there, but it reminds me that there are things about you that are very special. You may not be aware of that. It may not have really sunk in. But there's not another person on the planet like you are. Some of you think that's a good thing. (laughs) Some of you think maybe everybody ought to be like you. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is you are unique. No one has your particular set of aptitudes and talents and abilities that were built into your life when, as David put it, God fashioned you in your mother's womb. He made you uniquely. And there's never been a person like you, and there will never be a person like you. You are absolutely unique in all the world. You know, the Scripture says that one day when we see Jesus, those of us who know Him, He's going to give us a new name. And you know, in the Bible, a name typically described the character of the person. And we're going to get a name. Now, now there's a lot of Pauls. I'm surprised at how many Paul Martins there are. There's a lot of Paul Martins just in the phone book in this area. But one day I'm going to have a name that no one else has. It's the name that God will give me that perfectly describes me. The name by which He has known me. Now, He knows Paul Randall Martin and my date of birth and Social Security number, if that's important. He knows that. But one day He will give me a unique name. And it'll be a special name. It'll be God's name for me. Because He has seen me in His mind's eye from the foundation before the foundation of the world and you. And the gifts and talents and abilities He's given you are yours. But more than that, Paul is telling us that when we come to know Jesus Christ, He empowers us with a supernatural anointing and to those natural aptitudes which He is now in the process of sanctifying for His own purposes. He adds spiritual gifts. And He equips us to do things in the body of Christ that have supernatural power. That God can show up in your life and touch other people. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's amazing. That, that just an ordinary human being, now indwelt by the Spirit of God, can show up in a group of people and let Jesus come out of them in the unique giftedness that He has given. And you are God touching another person with supernatural power. I mean, that's phenomenal. And so Paul reminds us, you're a living sacrifice. You're a living sacrifice. Now that you have made this devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ, the first thing you need to realize is you have a ministry in the body of Christ. One of the things that I thought was so cool about last night was the reminder that Jesus is the healer. 
And Pastor Hector explained it even more thoroughly than I, that neither he nor I nor any other pastor present, there were five pastors present, but we were not the special people. God was going to minister through His body. And, and all on the sides of the room, there were people, over 40 people, that had uh, been willing to accept the responsibility of being a prayer intercessor. And the whole point was, it wasn't who it is or where they were, it was the fact that we were calling on the name of Jesus. And you can minister Jesus to one another. And when we get together, when we get together, you have something to give this family that no one else has. You can't go do your Christian thing by yourself. That, that's, that's an antithesis to the Scripture. You, you can't be a closet Christian. You can't go, you know, watch TV and listen to the radio and, and get your spiritual rejuvenation and just live in a little aisle in a little vacuum. You cannot grow like that. I know some people think they can, but what they're getting is a bunch of a bunch of knowledge, but they're not growing in grace. You've got to get together in a family and bang into each other and, and share your life in Jesus Christ and offer your gifts and serve one another and receive from one another. You have to have that going on and you're not going to grow in Christ. We're designed to be dependent on God and dependent on each other. We're made that way. God wants us to be a family, to be in love with each other. And so the first thing Paul says is, you have gifts, use them. Step up to the plate, take your turn. Take your role seriously. Not anyone here this morning can say, I don't have anything to offer. You have something, you may not know what it is. Come, we'll help you find it out. Because you have something. You have something to give. It could be just a word of encouragement. It might be being a prayer partner, a prayer warrior. It, it could be serving, helping in any myriad of ways. But you have something that this family needs. And you need to be doing it. So Paul reminds us, the first, the first order of business, when we get the issue of who's in control, the first order of business is to devote ourselves to the family of God and give our gifts, our ministry. And you know, being practically minded as the Apostle Paul was, he realizes that as soon as you start doing that, you start banging into each other. You know, we, 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 we try, but none of us have figured it out perfectly. Anybody here arrived? I know you haven't because you're still here. No one here has arrived. You're still on a journey. You're still under construction. God's still working on you. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to, without intending to, you're going to hurt each other's feelings. You're going to let people down. You're not going to come through when somebody's counting on you. And, and people are going to get offended. And, and, and you're going to do what you think is a good thing and somebody's going to get damaged by that. And, and then there's an opportunity to let love really come through in forgiveness, in, in confession, in apology, in, in expressing godly sorrow. And so Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Because as soon as you start serving, it gets messy. But God gets in the middle of that and begins. That's how you grow in grace, by the way. You get in there and you just start doing it. And, and when you make the mistakes and you stumble and God comes in. Years ago, I formulated this idea about committees in churches. Because committees, they're pretty weird when you think about it. But I, I, I saw, I just like I had a glimpse of God's sense of humor. Because there aren't very many committees in the Bible. I mean, you might could make a case for the disciples and the Council of Jerusalem and whatever. But, but at any rate, 
I thought, what is the purpose of committees? Committees get together and they think, well, let's say I'm the leadership team, or I'm the elders, or I'm the Christian Education Committee, or or I'm the the Publications Committee, or whatever committee they think. And they, they think that's what it's all about. That's not what it's all about. God just has this great sense of humor where he puts people in this room and says, okay, you've got to work on this project. Now, you think you're working on getting a publication out, but what God is working on is, is sanctifying you. And so he puts you together with people that just rub you the wrong way, that just make you crazy. And, and he starts, he closes the lid, this is the committee room, and he starts shaking the box so that you just kind of rattle around in there and bang against each other. If you don't love each other, you're going to fail. But if you're committed to God and you love each other, you know what's going to happen? God's going to knock the rough edges off. God's all about making you look like Jesus. You may think you're about a publication, but God's about making you look like Jesus. That's what church is all about, making you look like Jesus. As we celebrate Him and worship Him together, He wants to make you look like Jesus in your unique way. And so He says, loving each other, blessing those that persecute you. Oh, wow. Rejoicing with those that are happy, crying with those that are sad, being of the same mind, not being haughty. That whole passage is about loving each other in the family and in the world. Because as soon as you make that devotion to Jesus Christ, you get into this cross counterculture, not cross culture, but countercultural thing. Some of the people heard me preaching in Romans 14 on Christian liberty and freedom, and they thought, ah, I can go do anything I want to do. No, you can't. You can go do anything Jesus lets you do. There's a big difference. We're called to be countercultural. We're called to model the life of Jesus Christ out there in the world. What does he say in verse 2? Do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the will of God. So you go out in there in the world living as a counter-cultural revolutionary manifesting Jesus Christ. And guess what? They don't like it. Because you're bringing light into their darkness. You're exposing their deeds just by showing up with Jesus. And the world resists that. And so there's persecution, and there's rejection, and there's all these things going on. And Paul says, remember, God is the one who sorts it out in the end. It's not your job to get even. It's not your job to worry about who's doing what. It's just you go out there and model Jesus. And let God take care of that. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We need to see that picture. And no sooner does Paul begin to shift the spotlight from our life within the family of God here in the church family till he moves to the community and society and he says, you know what, you also belong to a government. You're, you belong to a nation. You're under a government. And every person on this planet, there's some 200 and something countries, and everyone lives in one of them. And we're under that government. It may be a democracy like ours, sort of. It may be a dictatorship like North Korea. It may be some kind of totalitarian regime. It may be a, a, a military-controlled government. It, it, it could be any kind. This chapter 13 is not just written to Western United States citizens. It's written to every believer anywhere in the world. And you remember the basic message, any government is better than no government. That's what Paul says in here. Any government is better than no government. But in the midst of that, he reminds us, we are what? Living sacrifices. Guess what? It's not about me. It's not about whether I get a tax break. It's not about whether I get the guy in office that is going to improve the economy. So I can buy more stuff and live more securely and be happier. What a nonsense that is. 
That's not what it's about. Paul says in Romans 13, your, your objective is to model Jesus Christ in the government, in the culture, in the society. Get out there and be a model citizen of whatever nation you, you belong to. Because it's not about you. It's about representing me in this world. My kingdom is not of this world. You're a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Walk like a prince and a princess among the peoples of the world and model my love. That's what it's about. There's times when you can't go along with the government because the pressure is to do something that is ungodly. And we have to obey God rather than men. And then you take your lumps like Jesus Christ. You remember in the garden? John records this, and it's such an incredible picture. The garden of Gethsemane, he's finished praying. Judas has come with, with the Pharisees and with the Roman cohorts and the guard and, and the temple guard, and they're going to arrest Jesus and take him to trial, falsely accusing him with the intention of murdering him on the cross. The whole thing is cooked up. It's, it's, it's all a crock. None of it is true. And they come to that garden gate and Jesus says, Whom do you seek? And they say, We're looking for Jesus. And Jesus utters two simple words that hearken back to Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush when he said, when I go to Pharaoh and tell him what you want me to tell him, whom shall I say sent me? And God said to Pharaoh, uh, to Moses, you tell Pharaoh, I am that I am sent me. The eternal being one. The one who has no beginning, the one who has no end, the one who is the author of life, the one who is the maker of the universe, the one who gives Pharaoh his next breath. You tell him, I am sent you. And when these guards say, we're looking for Jesus, he answers them the same way. Same two words. I am. And they fall on the ground. They fall over backwards. They can't arrest Him. What are they thinking? They have no power. They can't even stand up in His presence. But He goes with them. Like a lamb to the slaughter. Like a sheep dumb before its shearers. He goes, the Lamb of God, in submission And Paul says, you look like that in society. You look like that in the government. You model Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Wherever God has planted you. Do you have the big picture? And you know, you and I are going to make mistakes. We're going to do stuff wrong. I'm not talking about intentionally, I'm talking just accidentally. other day I was headed up Green Street, I was on the phone. Not only was I on the phone, I wasn't even thinking entirely about my phone call, I had other things on my mind. But I've still got my foot on the gas, my hand on the steering wheel, and I'm kind of going north on Green Street. That is north. And uh, all of a sudden I realized that houses were going by too fast. And I looked down and I was doing about 40 miles an hour. You don't do 40 on Green Street. You know where the next place I looked? Rear view mirror. Yes, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Rear view mirror. And in this occasion, it was, whew, there wasn't anybody back there with lights going. Like That was a good thing. I slowed down and got the thing back under because I was already in the 25 mile an hour zone. And it was like, Ehh! And I got it back under control. But I thought to myself, could you play through the scenario? What if there had been an officer behind me and I had been stopped? What would I say? Do you know why I stopped you? Yes, sir. 
You know how fast you were going? Yes, sir, 40 miles an hour. You know what the speed limit is? Yes, sir. I see your driver's license? Of course, sir. Even when we're wrong, we model Jesus Christ. We're called upon to do it. Doesn't matter if they're nice or not. Doesn't matter if they're having a bad day or a good day. It's not about me. I remember one day, a number of years ago, David Brill and I were going somewhere after the the men's breakfast, and he got in the car with me, and again, I'm talking to him, and we pull out here and go up to this traffic light, and, and I'm talking to David, and the light turns, the arrow turns green for the left turn. I see the cars beside me start to go, and I just went straight. Yeah, oh no. And, and it was a red light, and the cars coming at like looking at me like, what are you doing? And I looked in the rearview mirror, and there was a police officer right behind me. And I thought, you know, he had enough sense not to go through the red light, but I thought, I'm just going to pull over and wait for him, because there's no way, there is no way he can ignore this. I mean, he, nobody's that dumb, except me. And so I just pulled over and I waited for him. And he came up to the car and he said, thank you. I said, I said, I knew you couldn't pass it up. You had to stop me. May I see your license? Yes, sir. He says, you know, that's pretty dangerous what you did. I said, I know it. I wasn't even thinking. I said, guilty. You know, I just, my head was in another place. You know, I'm thinking David Brill's in the car with his pastors, pastors, you know, getting a, And I apologize profusely because I know the danger that can cause. I mean, I've been to those accidents. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He actually gave me a warning. But you know what? If he'd given me a ticket and I had to go to the court, there's no excuse for it. I'm wrong. We are called to model Jesus Christ in every circumstance. Don't lose the big picture. It's not about us. We're called to model Jesus Christ. And so Paul ends that chapter by saying, be sure that the only thing you owe each other is love. Don't don't get in somebody's hip pocket with favors and under the table deals and all kind of stuff going on. You owe each other love. That's your debt. And we have a debt to pay. And that debt is, Paul says, I am a debtor. I am indebted. Why? Because I have seen the truth of Jesus Christ and I have been forgiven and I have eternal life and I'm going to heaven. And there are these people around me that do not have a relationship with God and they're going to spend eternity separated from Him. And I have a debt. I need to model Jesus. Don't forget that. And he comes to chapter 14 and he says, and when you're living in the church, you remember that the most important thing, and listen to me folks, the most important thing in the church is unity. The most important thing in the church is unity. We've got hundreds of denominations today. We've got all kinds of different perspectives Everybody's got a different idea. We've got folks that think you've got to use this version of the Bible. We've got other folks that think these rules have got to be kept. And we've got folks that don't want any rules. And, and in the midst of all of that, remember Jesus' prayer with His disciples in John 17. Father, that they could be one like you and I are one. That they could be one. The most important thing for the ministry of the Holy Spirit is unity in the body of Christ. If we're fussing with each other, if we're divided, if we don't have unity, the Spirit of God is grieved and He is not free to work. There is nothing that will cut the work of God short faster than fraction and division within the body. Unity is of paramount importance. And so Paul, in his admonition of 14, he says, those of you that have liberty and are free in Christ, receive everyone else without an agenda. Remember that? Receive everyone without an agenda. Don't try to fix everybody. 
It's not your job to fix them. It's God's job to fix them. It's your job to love them. Receive them without agenda. And if you're the one that's still all caught up in in, in rules, and I know this is hard for you to get if you're like that, because you think you're right. And you think I'm nuts right now for saying it. And you think you're right. But the admonition is, verse 13, don't judge each other anymore. You're not my judge. I'm not your judge. We have one. He sits on the throne of heaven. To Him we will stand or fall, but to each other we love each other. We have no business saying, oh, did you see what He... I was in the video store the other day. Did you see what He rented? Did you see where He went? Did you see what He was doing? We have no right to say that. If somebody is absolutely violating one of the ten that are clear moral absolutes, then we have a responsibility to one another. But so much of what people fuss about in the church doesn't fit that category. And Paul, in the midst of that, says we have, we have a responsibility to love each other. Not to judge not to try to fix, not to try to change. You know, as you grow in the body of Christ, you know this, over time, when people know you love them unconditionally, do you know what I'm talking about? You love them unconditionally. I love you no matter what. I'll stick with you no matter what. When people are really convinced of that in their heart, You earn the right when God prompts you to speak into their lives. Sometimes things that are hard to hear, you earn that right because they know you love them. They know that even if they get it wrong, you love them. And what you said, you said out of love. When people know you love them, then we can truly minister to one another in truth. But you've got to have that conviction first that I am loved and I love without condition. I receive you. This is supposed to be a safe place where the unity of the body magnifies the presence of the Holy Spirit. Don't lose the big picture. And then in all of that as he comes to chapter 15 and I just want to summarize, uh, going into verse 13, as he comes to chapter 15. Ultimately, he says, Christ has sent me to minister to the Gentiles, to bring the Gentiles in. He's talking there about cross-cultural inclusion. He says, one day, one day, we're going to appear with Jesus Christ at the marriage supper. He doesn't say those specific words, but that's what's in his mind. He says, God has sent me to the Gentiles, to all the nations. One day we're going to be together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day we're going to spend eternity together. And between now and then, the church is called upon to model that all-inclusive, all-embracing love, cross-culturally, cross-racially, in every way, to model that love for one another. One of the things I was interested in, this guy, this IDAC seminar guy, he's identified 90 different thousand occupations out there. And I don't know where he got his statistics, but he said the most stressful, the second most stressful occupation in America today is being a pastor. I'm not just saying that because I am one. That's what he said. But he said the second most stressful, or the number one most stressful job is being a pastor in a cross-cultural ministry. I thought, no wonder. (laughs) I can identify with that. It is tough to reach out and embrace everyone in the family of God. And Can we just be honest for a moment? Most of, most of you are Midwesterners. I hear that Midwesterners have the best diction in, in, the, in American English. 
you, you have less accents and, and more proper diction. I think that's kind of interesting. You don't always finish your sentences. One of the first things that was hard for me to get used to when I moved here was people say, you want to go with? <laughs> with what? Who? Where? <laughs> finish the sentence. But after I got over that, I, I mean, but if, if you're white, Anglo-Saxon, Midwest, grown up in the heartland of America... You don't even come on the same page naturally. You have different ideas from each other. And then when you mix that up, racially and culturally, it gets real challenging. And and having cross-cultural connection is a tough task. It requires work. I remember a number of years ago reading a textbook on traditional Chinese medicine. Man, you know, in Western medicine, you, you, you have a system approach to the human body. You've got a digestive system and a cardiovascular system and a pulmonary system and an endocrine system. And you kind of look at it and you say, well, what's wrong with this one and that one? And you try to, to comprehend the body in that systematic terms. If you're studying Chinese medicine, you have warm liver syndrome and hot kidney and cold this and and energy fields here and and meridians there and stuff going the other place and your foot affects your lung and it's like ah i they have 200 different descriptions for the pulse you're lucky if you can teach medical technicians today just to take one and get a number how many beats in a minute they have 200 ways to describe it. It's bounding, thready, sort of stringy, vibration-like, uh, sort of irregular, kind of goes to warm liver syndrome. Man, I don't get that. I don't, I don't begin to understand. The Eastern mind is totally different from my mind. Comes at life a different way. Sri Lankans are vastly different from Argentines, who are vastly different from Russians, who are vastly different from people in the United States. And even when there's the same language, Anglos in this country make a huge error when they lump everyone that speaks Spanish into the same culture. There are 30 different nations that speak Spanish. And they're as different from each other. A Chilean, Spanish-speaking person is as culturally diverse from a Mexican-Spanish speaker as the Mexican is from the person who speaks English in the United States. Their cultures are vastly different. But I'll tell you one thing that's true about every person on the planet. We love life. We hate pain. We love our children. We care for our families. We want to be healthy. When we lose a loved one, we're sad and we grieve. And when we face eternity without Jesus, we're going to spend it in hell and we're lost. And when you cut through the language and cut through the culture and cut through the color and get down to the basic. We're all alike because we're made in the image of God. And Romans 15, moving toward the end, is all about the fact that the church is called to be a microcosm, a little picture of that heavenly wedding feast where we reach out and embrace all peoples and all race and all color and all nations and all language and we love each other in Jesus Christ. I may not always understand the point of view. I may not get the thing in terms... I may come to the end of my language barrier and I can't cross it with the depth of my idea, but my heart can connect with another person's heart in Jesus Christ. And I know this for a fact because I know it in my experience. People of other culture, 
people of other language, when I can't even communicate fluently, they know if I love them. And they know that I do love them. And I know when they love me. And I'll tell you very honestly, sometimes when Hector and I just, we just cannot get it together. We're just, it's like, man. And we've said and done everything we can say and do, and we boil it down to the bottom line. When we get to the end of that discussion, do we love each other? Yeah, we love each other. Okay, then we can, whatever else is going on, we can deal with it, as long as we love each other. We are called to model that acceptance. We are called to embrace the whole human race with the love of Jesus Christ. And when that person becomes my brother or sister, we are called to fold them in in unity and to model love cross-culturally. Love multiracially. We're called to do that. And we're the only people on the planet that can do it right from the heart with the love of God. Friends, don't lose the big picture. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And this isn't about me. This is about making Jesus Christ known in this world, in the church, in the home, in the government, in the culture, with people who agree with us and people who disagree with us, with people who have different agendas, but are still in the family of God. We are called to model His love so that others may come. As we, as living sacrifices on this planet, die to ourselves that we might live to God and He might live through us. Because when it's all said and done, there's only going to be two kinds of people Those who are with Jesus Christ at the wedding feast. And those who are banished to a Christless eternity in the lake of fire that burns forever. There's only going to be two kinds. And our mission is to call others to stand with us with Jesus Christ. That's our mission. And it's accomplished by modeling His love. Father, I pray this morning that as we step back to get the overview of the Colorado Valley of Romans, we see the lay of the land, we understand what we're all about. Don't let us lose the big picture, O God. Let love be without hypocrisy. Don't let us miss that big picture. Remember why we're living sacrifices. Remember our relationship and pursue you with all of our heart. That we might bring as many as possible with us. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.